0: Black girl magic, we can see how that would be resistance because we're taught to hate ourselves and think we ain't shit, but black girl magic is just about us affirming ourselves. Us knowing that we're dope and like a woman in the 1800s who does not have the right to vote but takes off from her work to go to the polls is not
1: doing that in resistance. She's doing that because she knows she deserves it. Hey y'all, you are listening to The Spiritual Home Girl where we discuss all things concerning self-development and bettering our spirit, but from the homie perspective, somebody that's going through the journey day by day, just like you. Hey, y'all, it's your girl, Maria, the Spiritual Homegirl, and we are back with another episode of the Spiritual Homegirl podcast. Before I get started, I just want to do my usual uh, note of gratitude. of uh, thanking you guys for listening to the show. You can listen to any podcast out there in podcast land, but you choose to listen to mine. I hella appreciate that. It means the world to me, especially y'all that's been hitting me up, um, you know, showing love on the post. Those who show love on the post and listen to the episode, double cool points for y'all because the page is about the show. (laughs) So that's great to see that y'all clicking links. I appreciate that. Also, um, those who have hit me in my DMs to tell me about the speaking event, those that showed up, I appreciate that as well. I am so excited about life. I really am. There's some really cool collaborative opportunities that are coming up and I'm so excited. It is only day seven of the last 31 days of the year. And I'm really happy to say that I'm still working day by day to achieve my goals before the end of this year. Whatever goals are meant to be accomplished will be accomplished as long as I put forth my best effort behind it. And I want to give a quick note about that. I'm already seeing memes about 2018 going to be my year. 2018 going to be my year. I used to be that way, so I'm not knocking y'all. But please, y'all, don't throw the whole damn December in the trash. We are in the first week, bro. You got, what, three more weeks to get it cracking? Let's see. Today's, what, the 7th? You got 24 days to make this shit pop before the end of the year. Why are we already discounting December? Don't throw the whole December in the trash, y'all. I look at it like this, and I'm not trying to tell y'all y'all wrong for thinking how y'all think, but just try a different perspective. The way I look at it, right, having something be your year has to be broken down to something. It has to be broken down into 12 months, 28 to 31 days, depending on the month. Then you break down the day. There's 24 hours in a day, if I remember correctly, because my mental math might be off. It's 1,440 minutes in a day. So you can really make something your year, by making something your month, by making something your day, minute by minute. Today is Thursday, y'all. Let's try making Thursday our day, then Friday our day, then Saturday our day, and so on and so forth. Next thing you know, time will pass, and you'll be able to assess, yo, like, did I really master this year? Did I get my best effort this year? Was it really my year? So I just wanted to give you guys a different perspective with respect to um looking at, our years is definitely really making things, quote unquote, our year. It, it, it could always be your year. 2017 is still going to be your year. Why? Because even if you may not have done everything you set out to do, or even if you had some setbacks and some obstacles, you learned some shit that made you a better person, a lot wiser, and a lot more prepared to handle whatever you're ready to receive when that time comes, whether it be in the next 24 days or whether it is in 2018 or 2030, what have you. This is making you a better person and making you more stronger. So I just wanted to let y'all know, you know, just give y'all some love on that because don't throw the whole December away. That's all I'm saying. Just don't throw it away. But um, on to this <laughs> this week's interview. So this week's guest is Sarah Makiba. She's a friend of mine. I think she's dope. Um, She is a womanist. She's a master's degree candidate. She's an archivist. She's a history buff. Um, She's dope, actually. You know, she focuses on Gullah Geechee culture and you'll learn more about her as we talk but it was basically two girls kicking it just talking we didn't really have no format questions or anything like that we were at Stone Mountain Park you know just chilling and um, if I remember correctly we were on Robert E. Lee Drive or Street or what have you but I do know that it had Robert E. Lee on it and I thought that was interesting because we're talking about Afrofuturism and with respect to our connection to our ancestors, and us truly being the manifestation of our ancestors' wildest dreams. And it's so beautifully ironic that we had this conversation at Stone Mountain Park, because I'm from Stone Mountain, East Side Stand Up, and Sarah is familiar with Stone Mountain as well. And Stone Mountain, that whole mountain, that park, that monument, is a confederate monument. And we did this interview around the time there was still some uproar about the Confederate statues and the feelings they invoke, and how it's it's really, it is history, but it's not a good piece of history for us to keep celebrating and acknowledging. And here we are in a majority um, black town, such as Stone Mountain, because Stone Mountain, if I remember correctly, is uh, three quarters uh, black um, or of color. So seeing those four people that represent the Confederate, you know those people who lost the damn war immortalized on this mountain in a reality that is the complete opposite. Especially when you had the clan having their meetings and burning crosses and shit like like 60, 60 to eighty years ago. It's just really cool that what used to be some bullshit it still represents some bullshit, but it's so it, we're over here talking some completely different stuff in spite of that. It's a whole different reality. Shit is changing. I don't know if you guys notice, but a lot of our uh social structures, a lot of our little systems, they're crumbling piece by piece. I don't know if you guys are paying attention. Um, I'm here for it. I feel like sometimes the old shit gotta go to make room for the new. But I don't wanna take up too much of your time with uh with my thoughts about you know, about that. We can do that in another episode. But Sarah and I really chop it up. And for those who are not of color, I highly encourage you to listen to this episode because I think sometimes our celebrations of who we are as people of color or black people, whatever you, you know, wherever we identify as, because there are some differences, I think that sometimes comes off anti something else, whether it's anti white, whether it's anti American, anti whatever the fuck. And I really want y'all to understand that it is not the case. And you'll hear a lot of passion between me and Sarah talking about this because it's very frustrating when you grow up in a system that doesn't appreciate your existence, doesn't acknowledge your existence. You guys have to understand that black people were not considered a full human body until recently, like like within the past hundred years, if that, if that. So it's really interesting um to see people take our celebration in a way that feels like it's threatening them when it has absolutely nothing to do with that so those who may feel that way i'm asking that you please step outside of yourself and your perspective and your um in your lens and maybe even your ego this episode and really hear us out as to why we celebrate ourselves because we are used to not being celebrated or acknowledged period So uh, with that being said, I don't want to hold, again, don't want to hold y'all for too long because I will go off on tangents and I don't want to do that this episode. But without further ado, here is Sarah Makiba. Peace, y'all. This is Maria, the spiritual homegirl. We are live from Stone Mountain Park with Sarah Makiba. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be here and to be doing this interview. Yes. So today's topic is going to be on Afrofuturism. So with that being said, um, what exactly is Afrofuturism for those who don't know?
0: So I definitely want to start by saying that you could ask 10 different people and you'll probably get 10 interpretations. And so I think that's great. So I'm just giving my understanding of Afrofuturism, which is really, it's like a space. It's an aesthetic. It can be considered a genre of either, you know, literature, art, movement, theater, movies, you know, film, but it, it focuses on black futures. Mm-hmm. And generally, it's through a lens or it also incorporates what we think of as black history and um, black culture. And the only reason I say what we think of as black history is because as a public historian, which is um what I am, and I interpret history, black history, generally in historic spaces like southern plantations, we have this idea that history well one we have this idea that time is linear and we have this idea that history is the past this thing that happened behind us as opposed to looking at time as non-linear and something that is happening all the time and for me interpreting black history was not possible without talking about the present and interpreting black history wasn't possible without acknowledging that we are our ancestors futures like, we are their manifestations. We are what they worked for. And then when you look at it like that, just talking about this stuff that happened then doesn't make sense. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Afrofuturism, for me, is a space to incorporate all of those things. Our ideas for the future, our manifestations, acknowledging what we are, who we are, how we got here, thanks to our ancestors and what they were doing. And so that's what I look at it. And it, um, you know, some people might just refer to it as black science fiction or speculative fiction, and it certainly is, like I said, a genre of literature, but it's bigger than that. I think it's a device. It's something that we can actually utilize to create the reality that we want, and so that's how I incorporate it into my research work. I'm currently uh, getting my master's in public history, and my thesis is basically looking at how Afrofuturism can help heal generational trauma in black women, and um, You know, it's just blowing my mind. All the resources I'm finding, all the connections that I'm putting together are just making me really aware that Afrofuturism is something that is accessible to all of us, to Africana people, people of African descent on the continent and throughout the world. But um, it's something we've been
1: doing this whole
0: time. I see.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just correct me if I'm wrong Mm -hmm. here. So Afrofuturism can be taken for some people as... African, well, quote unquote, African American sci-fi, but it's really just it's us living here in the present, like it's me and you talking yes. as the future of yes. our ancestors. That's what I, think. I mean, as a manifestation yes. of that. Yes. Okay. That's
0: how I look at it. Most I think that's a perfect example because I feel like. For most of us, the way that we're taught about black history, one, it's like a separate segment. It's not really included in American history. There's an American history story. And then blackness is this part that started in slavery and it only happened in the South and it didn't have anything to do with anything else. But when you're not taught African American history that acknowledges that indigenous people existed yeah. and that Africana people were here, were enslaved and brought here, then Indigenous people and black people in the school system would get the impression that we don't matter. You know what I'm saying? Because our everyday stories didn't matter. Because the only things you hear about history is, you know, slavery. And that was just sort of this very static thing. And slaves weren't people. So understanding their thought process wouldn't make any sense because they weren't human anyway. So if that's the case, then we don't understand that we exist because they kept going and so if we recognize that we're just sitting here as a response to that future that's because we know that we matter
1: and this conversation matters so yeah you see I'm real passionate you know what I want to go backwards Mm -hmm. um you said you wrote matter of fact the essay that you wrote can you talk to to us about that about afrofuturism with respect to healing the traumas of the black woman
0: Absolutely. So, actually, almost a year ago, I moved to Georgia from South Carolina, and on the ride here, I listened to the Friend Zone podcast, and it was an episode about epigenetics, and um, it was the first time I ever heard about it, and one way to describe it is just... Um, a lot of, you know, religious folks might call it generational trauma or generational curses. Yeah. But um, it's the idea that we carry really the scars of the trauma of our ancestors. And epigenetics basically means on top of the genetics. So it's not the genetics. It's above like this. Epidermis. There you go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, it's what we passed down. And the example that I heard and then later read was about these mice who were tested on actually... I want to say at Emory, so here in Georgia, these mice that were tested on, they trained these male mice to be terrified of a cherry blossom plant, the scent of it. And the way they did so is by shocking it every time they presented the scent of this plant. And um, eventually, the mice were terrified of the scent without being shocked. They just associated it with that shock. And they would, you know, react in terror whenever that scent was around. And what's also interesting is that they could actually detect smaller doses of the scent as well after a little while. They could detect smaller. (laughs) This shit is wild. But um, then they bred the mice with female mice And the offspring of the mice were also terrified of the scent So the offspring of the mice had never been shocked They weren't alive when they did these tests and experiments But they are also terrified of the scent And so, you know, you just apply that to black people in general And you think about the fact that slavery was less than 200 years ago the end of slavery was less than 200 years ago. There are studies that show that within animals and plants, they've detected trauma uh, traveling really up to 14 generations. Dang. And I want to say the last time I did the math were like five or six generations out of slavery. So, uh, man. right. So, you know, just thinking about the trauma we live with from our everyday experiences, but then recognizing that a lot of the stuff we're carrying is based on the experiences of our ancestors. One, it's important to understand and learn the experiences of our ancestors so we can sort of give ourselves, cut ourselves some slack. You know, when we recognize that some of our pain is not actually just ours. We're carrying unhealed pain from centuries ago. But, you know, how do we look at actually healing that? How do we look at healing that stuff? And when I started my master's program in January, I focused on Gullah Geechee women resisting um, during reconstruction in South Carolina and Georgia, mainly South Carolina, which is where I'm from. I focused on ways Gullah Geechee women had resisted using womanism. And womanism for me, another word that you might hear defined differently by different people, is just a, a space or theory that affirms black women, black feminine people, femme identifying people in our wholeness. So it acknowledges all the ways our identities intersect and all the forms of oppression um, that intersect in a way that some people feel feminism can't because feminism sometimes excludes race, yeah. you know, wants yeah. to appear to be colorblind. And that's not that's not a reality. So um, women, I was looking for ways that maybe Gulagichi women over history had um, exemplified or utilized what I understood to be womanism. And we don't usually get to hear those stories, those everyday stories about how like, When Southern plantation owners were leaving the plantation during the Civil War, because, you know, the Union was coming into the South. So plantation owners were fleeing. They were um, leaving the plantation, abandoning, essentially, abandoning the enslaved people just on the plantation. And this enslaved woman, now free because the plantation is abandoned, her name is Peggy in Georgetown, South Carolina. And when the plantation is abandoned, she goes into the big house and starts taking shit for herself. You know what I'm saying? She goes and claims the headboard and a dresser. And she takes some ribbons and ties her daughter's hair up. And it's like, that's trill as hell. This is an yeah. enslaved woman. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Somebody, she went into her owner's house and was like, I know you only have this because of me, because of my work. Yeah. And she she claimed it. So I saw all of that and I was super empowered and encouraged. But I was also just really aware of the trauma that black women faced from everyone That means everyone. That means not just white people. That means black men that we faced during slavery and after. Violence that we faced um, at the hands of everybody on the plantation and into Reconstruction as we're trying to create our lives. There was a lot of violence that we faced. And so just seeing those parallels between then and now and understanding that we're carrying all this weight. You know, what now? Now that I see you know why why we can be so hurt and just have a better understanding of a lot of the damage that we're carrying and feeling, you know, what now what can we do? You know, we don't want to just sit in the trauma. We want to honor it. We want to heal from it and then, you know, then what? So, afrofuturism just seemed like a cool place to look. And I was actually unfamiliar with the term and, you know, the uh, contextualization of it before this year, but once I learned more about it and started reading, you know, the big heavy hitters in in the field, so to speak, I definitely recognized it as something we've been doing all the time. It's something that's ongoing. So my paper just talks about examples of Afrofuturism in the lives of Gullah Geechee women. I focused on this one woman I had heard about named Alice Wine and she was from Johns Island. This scholar and activist from South Carolina, Dr. J. Herman Blake. In the 80s, he had done a series of interviews where he went to John's Island, South Carolina, and interviewed all the Gullah Geechee people he could find over 90 years old. And so he collected all these stories from these elders, and there is this activist who's pretty well-known named Esau Jenkins, if you're familiar with Jenkins Orphanage on John's Island, and uh, the Progressive Club. He basically Okay. He, um... What is it? He basically started a lot of grassroots activism in South Carolina. And I definitely encourage people to look up Esau Jenkins. I want to say there is a a focus on him at the New Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture. But um, the gentleman I'm talking about, Dr. Blank... He asked Esau Jenkins years ago what inspired him to keep going. And like I'm saying, Esau Jenkins is well-known. People know his name. So, you know, what inspired him? What got him to doing all he did? Esau Jenkins is the reason that there are all these people who are registered to vote. He got buses and bus people from Johns Island to Charleston and taught them how to read and understand the Constitution. He did all this dope stuff. And when asked what inspired him, he said it was Alice Wine. Alice Wine was an older woman. I'm saying must be at the time of this conversation or the time that she inspired him she was probably 60. But when asked at 90 years old what inspired her to in turn inspire Esau Jenkins she said that she remembered when she was younger and she was born in 1890. She remembers when she was younger and her mother and the women in her community were really involved in politics And so it's like, first of all, what is she talking about? You know, she was born in 1890. What black women were involved with politics? She was one of the first women under Esau Jenkins who was registered to vote. And it's like, so what inspired you to do that? She remembers when her mama did it. And they would spend all day at the polls. And sometimes they would pack lunches and they were so excited to just be involved in the local elections. And I did research on Reconstruction, which I talked about earlier. And it was this whole section, not even just in South Carolina, but in the Georgia-Atlanta area as well, about how avid black women were involved in politics. And obviously, after slavery ended for a short period of time during Reconstruction, black men could vote. Everybody couldn't vote. But black black men could vote. And black women were so involved. They would take off from work and they would go to the polls and they would amp their men on, their sons on on who to vote for, who they believe was Yes. They were trilled. They took off from their day jobs, whether they were working, you know, as domestics or field laborers. And they went and um the text that I read described it as like politics were their religion. That's how trilled they were. There was a riot, an election riot in Macon, Georgia. And um The Negro women, that's what it said. The Negro women were, in fact, maybe wilder than the men. And they were just seen yelling and just being real lit and amp about whatever was going on. And so I'm like, so this must be the period of time that Alice Wine remembered. You know, she saw that as a little girl. And in turn, in the 1950s and 60s, she's like, shit, I want to vote. You know, I deserve to be a citizen. I saw my mom be involved in that way, and that's what I'm going to do. And she, in turn spoke to Esau Jenkins, who was responsible then for thousands of people on Johns Island and throughout the low country gaining their citizenship in that way. And to me again, is that's an example of Afrofuturism. And um I think it's really big. I think there's no limit to how we can talk about it. I know for some that might sound like, well that means if Afrofuturism is everything, that means that it's nothing. You know what I'm saying? But um I just think there's lots of ways we can look at it and as a you know, it being described as something that includes science fiction or technology. Again, recognizing that we, in fact, might be the technology completely changes how we look at our everyday interactions or the things that we're doing or the things that were done before us.
1: So let's say hypothetically, I meet with an elder mm-hmm. to get their perspective. Mm-hmm. Somebody that's not too much older, maybe like up to be my, my parent or something. And then I ask them who inspired them. So an example would be going backwards to see who inspired my elder, my first elder and get a conversation with them to see if what we're doing is a manifestation of what they've dreamed of.
0: Yeah, I think that's super dope. And I wasn't even thinking about just like that, but I'm also, I'm always really excited about talking to elders and yeah, there's so much you can learn They're from amazing. them. They're amazing. Yeah, oh my god. Oh my god, there's And so another thing that I think about just in that regard is I read this book called Of Water and the Spirit by um, Maladoma Some, who is a shaman and a writer and a healer from what we know as Bikini Faso. And he's written several books, but in one, he talks about the special relationship between grandparents and grandchildren. Yes. Yeah. And I just, I'm like, we got to be taking, we got to be taking advantage of that. You know, we have got to be getting these stories and understanding and looking at our elders as human beings. And then again, I feel like it goes back to the ways we were taught to look at history. We were not in it. So we don't necessarily know. We can sit down and talk to our grandmas about school. Yeah. And then understand how that plays into the, the national history of school that we were taught we weren't in. You know, we can yeah. talk to our grandparents and parents who segregated schools, I mean, integrated schools yeah. versus some of them who never. I mean, there are schools that are still segregated, you know what I'm saying? And the stories of the people who never integrated schools, who have gone to black schools their whole life, generation after generation after generation, those stories really matter. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But we're not taught that they they matter. We're taught they're insignificant. But, yeah, going to an elder and asking what inspired them. Um, Another project I work on is called Real Black Grandmothers.
1: I'm glad you
0: brought that up. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, so I'm an archivist. And Real Black Grandmothers was started by this dope woman named Dr. LaShonda Pittman out of Seattle. She did a case study where she looked at black grandmothers as caretakers in Chicago, black grandmothers as caretakers from the ages of, I want to say, 38 to 83. These were the ages of the grandmothers. And um, she just recognized that there was a wealth of knowledge that we were not getting without acknowledging their stories, without learning who they are and learning who they are as women. And she also wanted to sort of challenge the stereotype or the narrative that there's only one way to be a black grandmother, and that only way is Medea or Martin Lawrence's Big Mama, or, you know, or Only Mammy. And not to say that those aren't valid, but they're not it, you know. And so the project, basically, we get to interview black grandmothers and the people who love them. And it's just so dope to talk to these women and talk to the people and talk to one grandchildren, because one of the questions is, how do you see your grandmother's legacy living through you? And just to see them maybe put that together for the first time, talk about the examples that grandmothers have left them, but also to grandmothers. Like, I interviewed my grandmother, who is, um She was a, an adult educator most of her adult life, so she taught parents how to be parents. Yeah. And um, she told me once, when I interviewed her, about this work she'd done, basically caring for this older woman at such a young age, and just how... She never thought about how that impacted her to do the work that she did and how she taught adults to work with children and how to, you know, recognize that your child is only going to be a child for so long. They're going to be an adult for much longer. So there's a relationship that you want to have. You want to foster that relationship and just how the work she had done as a little girl growing up in uh, the segregated South, going to Booker T. Washington Elementary School how that had prepared her to do this. So, absolutely. Talk to your elders, ask them what inspired them. Let them know that you care about their stories cuz I feel like, you know, so many of them once you get them talking, they're like, I wish somebody would ask me. They won't
1: stop. I think that's really important with elders. Um I have a lot of elders and I value my relationships with my grandparents like they're like that's like my heart. So I understand completely mm-hmm. about that um so and plus I know for me for the past six years, um, I've decided to film interactions mm-hmm. with my grandparents and just ask them questions. Um, not saying that I'm trying to manifest anything like in terms of them being gone, but I know that they're not going to be here physically forever. Yeah. So I said, you know what, let me start getting their perspectives on things so if I ever get to a situation where what would my grandma say, what would my pop-pop say? I can go back to some footage and listen to them mm-hmm. like and see them tell me their views on love, on marriage, on education, on having kids. Mm-hmm. So for those who, who would like to say, hey, you know, just get your iPhone out, your Android, Google phone, whatever oh, you got. Real. And just talk to them and ask, hey, can I tape you? And just talk. Just ask them questions about regular life lessons. Anything. Anything. Cook, shit. Cooking? Yes. Anything, anything. Anything that you can think of. Cause all all of that matters,
0: so it it don't have to be like tell me, you know, where you was when this statue was erected or something like. (laughs) It's sixty four, but I mean, just anything about them, all of that stuff is relevant and it matters. I wanted to add that I got into public history in Charleston. I started to work at a plantation. That was not my first job out of college, but a few years after I graduated, McLeod Plantation Historic Site was opening um, as a public historic site in James Island. And they were looking for interpreters or tour guides. And I was really excited about it because their goal was to interpret history through an African-American lens, as opposed to a lot of historic sites that you visit that only focus on the story of the white people that live there. And um, so this was going to be really... Really big and groundbreaking. Another thing that is unique about McLeod Plantation is the descendants of enslaved people lived on that plantation until 1990. Whoa. 1990. So there are cabins existing on the plantation that people lived into. Wait,
1: I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. Dang. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So three generations of McLeods, the, the Scottish McLeods, lived in that house. And the third generation, Mr. McLeod, who lived, damn, I can't remember now. I think he lived to 104 or something. Wow. And um, black people was living in them cabins. And so not only once we got the opportunity to interpret that history, we're we interpreting the history of slavery, but we're interpreting 20th century black people, Gullah Geechee people whose stories were valid, who lived at this site. And so it was going to be really different because... There are a few plantations open to the public in, um, Charleston and a few historic sites also that might just, you know, slavery didn't even exist as a plantation. I mean, you know, there are people who hear the word plantation and they don't think about slavery, you know? So those are the kind of spaces. So McLeod was different and it was an amazing opportunity learning what it meant to interpret history, basically just bring it to life and, um to flesh out and humanize our ancestors who don't always get their perspectives represented. So doing that research and learning how to do it was incredible, but I encountered a lot of pushback in the sense that there were many people who visited who were used to the normal narrative of we only hear about white people. You know, the slaves were happy. I got verbal pushback. I got people who challenged me to my face. On a tour? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: How do you challenge somebody who's trying to interpret the history on a tour?
0: I mean, you know what, girl? I think that we can't relate to the level of audacity. We can't relate to the level of audacity that white supremacy um, provides and cultivates, really. And what I recognize is that learning more history, we call it black history, but learning more history acknowledges that everything we were taught was a lie in regards to history. You know what I'm saying? The history of slavery, the history of the indigenous people who were already here. Everything that we've been taught is a lie and white supremacy rests on that idea that they came over here and just manifested their destiny. You know what I'm on saying? On somebody else's land. Yeah, on somebody else's land. But if you start to challenge that, that challenges present white people. Right. And that's that's what I learned because I recognized that they were they were defensive because they felt like I was directly challenging their identity. Like how up there you know, there were people who would come who didn't know that children were sold. From their families during slavery, didn't know that people couldn't get married legally, yeah. didn't know that people weren't allowed to read, didn't they? Don't know these things at all. So, to say anything, you know, they sold a seven year old from her parents, she was an orphan, and people are horrified. But, you know, what does that say about the system that we have built on this? And so, you know, if you believe. I guess that you really, you worked for everything that you have. And I'm telling you that actually this economy was built on our backs. And that's not true. Some people took that personally. And you know what? I can relate because everything that I was saying, I took personally. You know what I'm saying? It was personal to me. So... I get it, but it was definitely hard. It wasn't the type of site where we dressed in period attire. So, you know, we had just had on a park uniform, khakis, and a uniform. I do think, though, as a black woman and as a younger interpreter, I got more verbal pushback than other people. I can see that. Yeah, I yeah. Can see that. It was easier for people to challenge me. Um, my tour focused on Gullah Geechee culture, how that culture forms, um, on plantations in particular. And it didn't focus on white people, you know. That's not what the tour was about. It was about these enslaved West Africans who were brought here and how they were able to build this culture on these isolated islands and these isolated places and continue to thrive and hold on to all these Africanisms and make a new world in this new place. Which, again, to me, the more that I research is another example of Afrofuturism, that um, we were able to do this. But I had people who would come to me like, are there any more, are there any tours that are, um, what was it, more inclusive?
1: Something like that. You know what? That's the the conversation now. The thing that I don't like about modern day society that really grinds my fucking gears is that when we talk about black people or people of color, women of color, men of color, trans people of color, black girl magic, black boy joy, braids, fucking music, the whole nine, it's always some dumbass. And I try not to judge, but it's some dumbass shit. It's always some dumbass that's like, well, that's not inclusive. No, 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 no. The problem is that it's not. It's not wow. even about that. The problem is that we've been thrown to the side yes. and been on some other shit. We're like the other, the stepchildren exactly. of this country for so exactly. long. Anytime we try to celebrate some shit, we do. Well, what about this or what about yes. that? Damn it! Yes. Did you forget that we've been left out of the conversation dance. of what an American is for the past what two hundred and what forty one years? What seventeen seventy six? the entire damn right, time we've right. been in existence we have right. never been included in a discussion so for people to sit there and and have the audacity to fix their fucking mouths to say that it's what it's not inclusive welcome to the fucking reality Yo. of black people in this country and honestly anybody that's not uh, that's not white in this country mm-hmm. we all out here others. We're all others. We're not included in as much as y'all want to act like we are. We aren't. The reality is that we're not. The Indians are not. The Asians are not. Latinas are not. Latinos are not. We're all not included, bro. So when we celebrate ourselves, please understand. If you're a person that's not of color listening, please understand. It is not about being anti-you. It's about being pro us because oh God, this country God, no is not pro us. You. We ain't got damn time to be anti anything. No one We're trying to damn survive five. out here, bruh. Yes. The way this climate is right now, it is yes. not safe for people of color. It's yes. not safe for Muslims. It's not safe for trans people. So all of these people are banding up in their own, like their own interests or their own groups because y'all, I'm not y'all, let me not say that. The country at large, society at large, does not fuck with us. Mm-hmm. So that's why when y'all say the inclusive shit, it comes off offensive, mm-hmm. and it comes off disrespectful because it's not about being anti y'all. This country has been anti us for a very long time. We're just trying to celebrate and keep ourselves uplifted. I'm sorry. Right. Here's the mic. Here you go.
0: No, no, I'm you sorry, on but it? it had to be you on it? And it, it's just. White supremacy and toxic masculinity and heteronormativity are just a a hell of a drug. Because that's the same kind of pushback you'll get when you hear people want to talk about straight pride. And it's like, nobody is... White people doing that? Oh, yeah, girl. And that's not just white people. That's black people talking about straight black pride. And it's like, you're not in danger because you're heterosexual. You know? And (laughs) one of my best friends is gay. He talks about this all the time. He don't just wake up like, I'm about to have a gay day. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) He's just living his life. And him affirming himself and wanting to celebrate his identity is not an affront to someone else. You know? It seems like it's resistance because y'all are giving us something to resist. Right. You know, I've actually been thinking a lot about how I look at the word resistance because I feel like it focuses more on, again, the thing that we're resisting as opposed to groups of people affirming themselves. Like right. Black Girl Magic, we can see how that would be resistance because we're taught to hate ourselves and think we ain't shit. But Black Girl Magic is just about us affirming ourselves. Right. It's not That's about it. white people or, or any people who would tell us we're not. It's not about nobody else, right. you know? Right. And so I feel like a lot, of our, a lot of what has been coded even into the present and considered resistance, just for me, I'm not saying everybody should stop resisting. I'm just saying I'm trying to focus more on us. And I feel like us knowing that we're dope and getting up every day and, like, a woman in the 1800s who does not have the right to vote but takes off from her work to go to the polls is not doing that in resistance. She's doing that because she knows she deserves it. Right. She knows her voice matters. I am my answer to my yeah. wildest dreams. Facts. Exactly. Facts, facts, facts. So I don't work on a plantation anymore. I am part of a project called the Slave Dwelling Project. And this is um, started by a gentleman named Joe McGill. He is uh, a reenactor, a union soldier reenactor. Um, but he started this project, I want to say 2014. And he goes to historic sites and um, presently existing slave dwellings. He spends the nights at those sites. Ooh. He sleeps over. And um, I haven't actually never pers- uh, pers- participated in overnight but i do the next day always it's on a weekend on saturday we have a program called inalienable rights living history through the eyes of the enslaved and different black interpreters come and it's basically living history there's on-site cooking over open hearth and there's a storyteller they do the union soldier reenactments it's a really dope thing to be part of initially i when he approached me about being part of it and bringing my perspective, I did not want to dress in period dress. And that's, you know, people who dress up in the attire of whether it is a, a Civil War soldier or an enslaved person or an antebellum person. And I don't have a problem with period dressing. I have a lot more respect for it now that I've done it. But um, for a lot of people, Gullah Geechee culture is considered a gimmick. It's misunderstood. What do you mean a gimmick? I mean, people think it is like a caricature. Like, you know, one, I don't, so I don't speak fluent gullah. If I'm angry or if I'm around family and friends from home, you might hear the accent come out more, but I don't speak it fluently. But you will have storytellers or people who are, you know, talking about and supposedly interpreting Gullah Geechee history, but the punchline is the gullah person. The gullah person or the gullah language is the joke. And, um, you know, that's not what it's about for me. Also, Gullah Geechee people like myself, we exist in the present. So the idea that it's just a slave culture or that it's just a performance does not rock for me. And there are people, you know, who will buy into it because I want to say tourism is a billion dollar industry in Charleston alone. And... A lot of people make money off the Gullah Geechee name and culture. Gullah Geechee people should be the number one people making money off it. So I get why people are going to engage in the game, but I it's very important for people to know that I'm a Gullah Geechee woman in the present talking about it. I'm not I'm not pretending to be an enslaved woman. I fuck with people who do that. Yeah. But that's just not what I do for those reasons. But um I do dress in the attire and I talk uh, in third person (laughs) and um, it's just incredible. And the type of people who come to this program are different than the type of people who might visit a plantation expecting a certain narrative. People who come to the Slave Dwelling Project or Inalienable Rights are coming to hear a story that they have not heard before. So that is really dope. Like I said, I've never been able to get myself to spend the night on a plantation. Um, Just going to one every day was rough. For me, for a little while, I worked at McLeod Plantation for over a year.
1: Wait, why was it why was it difficult for you? Was energetically was it something that you felt? Cause you feel cause people can feel shit. Yeah. So what what was it for you that made it tough? Facts. I'm
0: a heavy empath for one, so I do I did feel the energy. I mean, it was a historic site open to the public. So one thing people may or may not be aware with is plantation weddings are a big thing. Yeah. In the are, South, that's uh, a big industry. So people would get married there. So that was a hard thing to grapple with as a black person, as a person interpreting the history of slavery. Because it's like, like I said, some people hear the word plantation and they don't think about slavery at all. They don't associate plantations with slavery. But even if you are into the whole idea of the beautiful romantic South and there's this beautiful two story house with the columns and the trees and you sit on the porch. The only way to think that is beautiful is if you think the black people that lived and worked and died there don't matter. You know what All I'm right. saying? That's the only way to think that's beautiful. Because if you included the people who were enslaved and bred and raped and worked to death and still managed to exist to the present, then you wouldn't think that was a cute place to, you know, begin your marriage. Yeah, but
1: like that's a place where there's death. Yeah, you wouldn't
0: get married at Auschwitz, you know?
1: Oh, You would not.
0: Example. You wouldn't get married at Auschwitz. But, so that was hard. Also, again, it... Black people lived there until 1990, so I would meet people who knew people who lived there, or who lived there, or were descendants of people who lived there. So it's this ongoing thing. I also worked there when Walter Scott was murdered, uh, 20 minutes away in North Charleston. Um, what was that? 2015. I also worked there when Dylan Roof came and killed nine people in Emanuel Church, which was like 10 minutes from a cloud plantation, 7 minutes from my house. And... To go to work and try to interpret the transition to freedom, which was the theme, talking about these black people and how they'd been here and they'd uh, transitioned and they kept working and they did all these things. To go to work and try to tell that story when this man had just killed nine people because they were black. Right down the street at a historic site uh, that was founded by people that we we talk about in historic sites like Denmark Vesey who was an early member of that church and that's where he and a lot of people planned or did part of the planning for Denmark Vesey's uprising like all that history was present you know what I'm saying it wasn't something that was separated from me so on top of that just the people who were pushed back or didn't understand or who were offended by the history, which then felt like, oh, you're offended by me. You're offended by my existence if I'm telling you this and there's a problem to you. So, it was hard, but it was also the best job I ever did. I learned so, so much. It opened up a completely new field to me. It opened up a new network of people. I met so many, like, activists and artists and just international travelers who were coming to learn. I met a lot more dope people than hateful people, you know? Good. So... It was definitely worth it, and I will constantly, if you are prepared or interested in looking into that part of history, I would encourage people to visit McLeod Plantation Historic Site, also the old Slave Mart in Charleston, South Carolina, which is a, a historic site that's open where enslaved people were sold in Charleston. And um, check out the Slave Dwelling Project as well, because it's just a lot, of, it's a lot of dope people just trying to bring, bring it to life.
1: I'm glad you mentioned all that cuz I've always felt like you know I've I've always heard the phrase you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. I remember okay. reading um what was it Malcolm X on Afro American history. Mm-hmm. It was like one of his last few speeches before he was murdered. Mm-hmm. And he basically essentially says that. So we all know where we're going. We don't know where we've been. And that can be said for us as people of color. And it could be said as the nation as a whole. We like to gloss over a lot of shit. like to rewrite shit. We like to act like things didn't exist. And I think that we need to really put a cold look, logical look into what this is, process it, and then understand, okay, how can we move forward from it? You know what I'm saying? I think that we're in a lot of situations that we're in now because people don't want to accept the reality of what used to be. Yep. And so we're going to always keep going. It's almost like energy. Exactly. You keep perpetuating bullshit, falsities, illusions, mm-hmm. lying to yourself, deception. You're going to keep manifesting this same shit. So yeah. I think knowing knowing our history is so important. And it's it's also good that you've encountered more people who were able to receive that than people who push back. Because I think we're so used to having platforms and having opinions that we forget there are other perspectives to digest. Yeah. Your opinion ain't the only motherfucking yeah. opinion around. My my opinion ain't the only one around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think if we were really open to having a cool quiet mouth as we let somebody tell us what they've been through it could help us get so much understanding and develop more respect and ultimately more love and more unity for each other. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Not just as black people because we got, we got our own yes. issues. We got some and things to do. It's our responsibility. Yeah. It's
0: our responsibility. It's not...
1: Recognizing our own issues is
0: not to say that we don't get, <laughs> that white supremacy and institutionalized racism and the patriarchy are at the root of a lot of shit. But there are things that are up to us to address and solve. And um, I think that's, that's what we have the power to do because the more that I look at history and the more that I look at the present, but particularly the history, you know, you interviewed my mother on here, and um, my mother integrated schools up north in uh, Rochester, Syracuse area. And um, she just talks about really what I think. But it was terror, you know, inter- integrating schools and, and being the our, only little black school. Yes, are, so. it, exactly.
1: Like, that's, that's surprising.
0: So this isn't the point I was making, but I will say I um, interviewed my mother last year on a podcast I had called She Could Fly. And um, we were just talking about everything under the sun. So we talked about her integrating these schools. We was talking about racism. We was talking about sexism and misogyny. And um, she was talking about building our own table. You know, she wasn't interested in the seat at the table. She was interested in creating our spaces and doing what we can to heal one another. And I was like, okay, but how do you then respond to the Move House in Philadelphia? How do you respond to Black Wall Street? How do you respond to all these institutions that we have built for ourselves that the system has tried to or um effectively destroyed. Right. And um she was like and my mom is a storyteller, you know, so just everything she tells <laughs> sound like a story. She was right. like, I'm having a battle with these ants <laughs> and I was like what my and she was basically saying you know she has a garden in her backyard and these ants keep building building they piles in her on her patio and in her gardens and she's tried all the ethical and unethical ways to get rid of these <laughs> ants you know they just all in her space but the point is whenever she would destroy an ant nest the ants wouldn't sit around you know and have a conference and have a protest and like do this and that and they would just build another nest you know,
1: <laughs> mama's <so> <laughs> my, oh my mama's God, true. I love her. I
0: She's love real her. true. And um so that is certainly not to say we shouldn't protest. That's not to say that we shouldn't call out bullshit. That's not to say that we shouldn't speak about the things that are harmful and the systems that try to silence us. But that is to say, yeah, the ants just build another nest, right. you know, so we can't say. Damn, look at the move house we can't build anymore. Right. You know, and what what those visions of freedom look like to all of us will be different. But that's powerful for me in terms of, you know, just healing, healing trauma and what we can do. We can't expect nobody else to
1: do it. Damn, you laid that down. So bringing it back to the original, like the initial points of the interview, let's say that I have zero knowledge of Afrofuturism and I want to get into Mm -hmm. that on a literary piece. Where could I go?
0: Well, I will start and just say simple Google searches will show you a lot of stuff. Um, Not only just simple Google searches, but... Social social media is stressful, but it's also dope in the ways that we are connected. So if you just search hashtag Afrofuturism on Instagram. They have a lot of good stuff Oh, my on Twitter God, too. yes. Yeah. There's just so many resources. And so there's resources inside and outside of the academy. But I would definitely encourage checking out um Yatasha Womack's work. And she published a book called Afrofuturism, um, Black Sci-Fi, and Black, black fantasy and sci-fi culture I believe And um, she's a really good place who, A place to start that will help you Branch out into all these other things But I, I also say just look Because everybody's Interpretation of it is different yeah, I would just say start and look. I used to see people talking about this really dope Afrofuturist and scholar named Melanie McCoy. And um, I saw her. I met her on social media just like I met you on social media. And she really got me interested in looking into it. So there's a lot of dope people doing a lot of dope work. And shout out to you who are just always doing dope work. I actually had a consultation with Monique from um qualitarian, qualitarian yeah, like, yeah 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 mo, shout yeah out. shout out to mo you really be putting me on and you put a lot of people on it so i've connected with a lot of people thanks to your work
1: yes yeah thank you i feel like right this whole like well, the reason why i always wanted to do and this is kind of sort of off topic but i just got to put it on record right the reason why I never said Maria the spiritual homegirl with the shit I do or just tried to make it initially about me in the beginning, because I think I tried to, the point was to be faceless. That's why my logo is a chick with a hoodie on. It's a silhouette because anybody can fit into that role. The point was to empower people to get into their own shit and their own journeys and feel more comfortable where they are and take what works for them. You don't have to do a one-size-fits-all approach. You don't have to let nobody dictate exactly. how to live your life, how to connect with your spirit and be a better spiritual being as we are clearly having mm-hmm. a you know, human experience right, right now. But that was the whole point. So it's like when I look at people like you or people like Monique Mearsons from Qualitarian.life, people like Afia Ibamu, people even, I mean, even males, even, you know, like her husband, Stick, or your father, Ron. Like, Yo, it's like it, so they, they all can fit that that silhouette of yeah. what we can take to be better people. Mm-hmm. So that's why it really means a lot to me. Like, I, I, I mean, I know the podcast game is really a slow grind. But I feel like shit like that is like monumental to me. You feel me? Like that means the, the whole fucking world to me. So thank you. Um, thank you. Damn, I went off on a tangent. My bad. Okay. All right. So the other question is, you're an archivist, right? Mm-hmm. And you're obviously, you're a historian. Mm-hmm. I think that's dope that you're so young and you're also a double minority. I hate using that word, but oh, it's yeah, reality mm-hmm. as a woman of color. Um, So let's say there are people out here who are listening to this show that's like, yo, she knows her history. She knows her shit. I want to learn more about the history. I don't know where to start. Where do I start to get some kind of clarity?
0: That is such a great question. I think it goes back to there's no one size fits all as far as where to start. Where do you start if you want to learn about your personal history? I would say take the time to start asking your elders questions. And um, I know everybody doesn't have living grandparents or elders that they are related to, but there are elders in the community that are your elders, that um you can start to talk to and just ask them about how school was for them you know ask them how race relations were for them ask them about what they think about sex and you know what they were taught about how women were to behave what they were taught about how men got to be what the things that they learned and oh my god there are so many records that are kept by churches You know, I know a lot of us are moving from that sort of organized, yeah, traditional organized religion. But the amount of history that's just maintained in churches, I think that's a dope place to look into. I'd say go to your local library and just ask ask for black history books yeah you know sometimes we don't always know the questions to ask just go ask because librarians be like yeah i want to talk to you (laughs) i'll put you onto some resources yeah Yeah. so i would just say start small because what's cool for me is when i started taking black history classes i realized how the histories of my family and my history and the history of my people fit into the broader story that we are generally left out of and taught doesn't matter i always tell this example i um You know, you have your Gen Ed requirements and your elective. And African American history and studies was all electives. That wasn't general requirement. General requirement was a history class. Biology too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, All of that stuff is required. Uh, History of marginalized people is not. You know, (laughs) even though we're in the country. So how is excluded? But um, I learned in my European civilizations class, we learned about the French Revolution. And we learned about Toussaint Louverture. And, uh... We just learned about white people. And I can't tell you how shocked I was when I got to my African-American histories class and learned about the Haitian Revolution and learned that Toussaint Louverture was black. You know, that was left out of the story. (laughs) So I didn't know until later how enslaved people in South Carolina were influenced by the Haitian Revolution and that Denmark Vesey in Charleston, South Carolina, an enslaved man who bought his freedom from working and doing carpentry and also playing the lottery, bought his freedom and was influenced and inspired by a successful liberation attempt all the way across the world and was like, we can do this too. Right. So he is, um, you know, organizing people all the way in South Carolina and Georgia about this rebellion that he's planning that was inspired by Haitians. But when I took European civilizations, nobody told me the man was black. Right. You know? So I think there. I think it's simpler than we think, and I feel like the way the universe is moving and shifting and the way we're all recognizing that time is not linear, I think if you put out the intention to find the history and find the stories, they just going to come to you.
1: Ooh, good point. Yes. Another thing I also think was interesting for history is um, I got to find her name. I, I don't want to tell you the wrong name, but I like records. I like vinyl records. Mm. And... Um, sometimes I would go, for those who are really into vinyl records and record shopping, y'all know the Dollar Bin has some real dope-ass records from, from some relatively obscure names. In present day, they might not have been obscure back then, mm-hmm. but they're some, uh, sometimes obscure now. And there was a woman, and I'll post the woman's name. I'm actually going to reach back out to her now. You just inspired me to hit her back up. But I looked her up, right? Mm-hmm. It turns out that not only was she an artist, she used to also be a part of the civil rights movement as well. I think I got a record maybe four years ago, and I actually emailed her because I think she's a professor um, at, at a university. And She actually told me something about her, um, about her story. She said, I'm so surprised that you were able to find one of my records. That was so mm-hmm. long ago. And I said, well, you teach now? She's like, yeah, you know, let's stay in touch. So I'm going to probably hear her back up. I'm probably yeah. going to find her today. If I can find her email today, I'm going to hear her back up, and I'm going to ask if she wants to interview because i feel like she may be a black grandmother for the project and also from an elder perspective and from an afrofuturism perspective from what what you've interpreted Mm -hmm. i think that's that's a really good person to speak with so you definitely just inspired me to reach back out for a potential guest uh, for this show so hella thanks to you now is there anything else that you want people to know um, my boyfriend is really dope
0: among many things. <laughs> <laughs> shout <out to> <laughs> yes. Shout out to my boyfriend, James. He's a teacher and an artist and African drummer and a poet. He's real dope, but he also designed shirts. His t-shirt line is 100% dark matter. And so if you go to 100% dark matter on Instagram, you can check out his shirts and I call them wear wearable affirmations. Cause, um, his whole point is just to celebrate and affirm blackness and affirm our identity. So check that out. Um, my family is doing great work. My younger brother, Simeon, who you probably also remember from the show. He was the baby. He is... What show? We didn't talk about it. I'm sorry. So, uh, my family's on Gullah Gullah Island. Maria did talk to my mother, Natalie Days. And Natalie and Ron are actually married in real life. Been married over 30 years. And they are my parents. And the baby, Simeon, from the TV show, he is 24. And he is an actor and a scriptwriter and a storyteller. And, um... He is out here doing really dope stuff, so look out for him. He actually was the lead in uh, A Lesson Before Dying, which went up in Atlanta a month or two ago. That's dope. Yeah, so he's, everybody's doing dope things, and again, I just really appreciate you, and I will, um... Check out my website, sarahmakeba.com, because I write about the stuff I'm thinking about, and my goal is to make it as accessible and, um, you know, relatable as possible. I am really grateful for the opportunity to be in grad school, but like I was saying to Maria before the interview started, I just really think every institution that was built on this system is going to fall down, you know what I'm saying? So, all our baskets cannot be in the institution and in academia, so... Check me out and talk to me. I like talking about dope blackness, particularly dope black women, dope black women and femmes, but just blackness in general is my shit.
1: And for those that don't know, that's Sarah S A R A M S N Makiba and Maria, A K E B A dot com. Is that also your Instagram and, yeah, and Twitter? Twitter. Mm-hmm. All right. So anything else? I think that's it. Keep being dope. That's all. You heard it, Sarah Makiba. And that was this week's episode with Sarah McKee but I hope you all enjoyed it. I definitely enjoyed it. It's always a pleasure talking with Sarah. She's dope. Um, if you need to find me you can do so at spiritualhomegirl.com, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, spiritual Home Girl and Spirit Home Girl on Twitter. Uh, what's next? What I got going on? Oh the gym show was in town y'all for those who are in Atlanta, the Crystal Show is a thing and it's going on Friday, Saturday and Sunday. I think it's held by Mammoth Rock. and I think it's at the um, Gwinnett County Fairgrounds, if I remember correctly. So, um, admission is $5, y'all. Last I remember, I've never seen them take cars at the door. So, I highly suggest that y'all get there with cash. $5. Shoot, I would bring 10 just to be on the safe side. But... It's going to be a thing. I'm so happy. I love chopping it up with the vendors. A lot of them are local or they're, you know, a few states away. So it's really cool to see all the different offerings, bracelets, jewelry. I've seen some crystal dice, um, wands, pocket stones, clusters, anything that has to do with crystals in Atlanta. This is the big gym show that you go to to get your re-up. So I will be there from maybe 10 to 12-ish, so that's one of my homegirl hotspots. That's basically a place that I love to be at. So, to Silly's Raw Reality. If anybody knows me, y'all know I pick up Bay, which is a South of the Border Rap. I pick that up every Friday. And then this Saturday, I will be at the gym show, trying to make sure I budget accordingly. And then, oh, also after that, I'm going to my girl Tiffany's dance choreography uh, fitness class. She's doing Janet. At one i I'm so excited because Tiffany can dance her ass off. So, I, And she's a big Janet Jackson fan. You know she's coming to town in the next few weeks. So the, the class is basically in preparation for this concert, which is going to turn the city on, on its ear. So if y'all want to know what's popping in terms of what I like to do or what I think are, are some pretty dope places to be, those are my hot spots. To Silly's, <laughs> dance class at 1.30, On Saturday and then the gym show from 10 to 12. That is basically my weekend. And then I'm going to go kick it in the country with my grandmama and have a good time. So um, that's it, y'all. I didn't want to hold y'all for too much longer. This has been an episode of The Spiritual Homegirl. And remember, trust the journey and trust yourself. Peace.